because I'm really interested in the contradictions and the chafing between living well, feeling some sort of peace in yourself and a world that 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 attacks us and also is, is under attack both, right? We're living in wartime. So these these kind of chafings against one another, I'm very interested in in what happens in the chafing and in the in the kind of pearl structures that emerge in the rubbing. So think of it like an oyster, right? And an irritant. And then this pearl emerging out of the chafing, out of the irritation. That's the kind of art practices that I'm particularly intrigued by. to how it looks from here, life in the time of climate change. Here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty, life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, how it looks matters. So we offer these interviews as ways of giving us all new ideas and inspirations for making our way forward together. I'm Mary Claire, and today I'll be talking with Petra Kupas, a disability activist and community performance artist. Petra holds the Anita Gonzalez Professorship of Performance Studies and Disability Culture in the English and Women's and Gender Studies Department at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. She also teaches on the Low Residency MFA faculty in the Interdisciplinary Arts at Goddard College. Petra uses somatic and speculative writing, as well as performance practice to engage audiences toward more socially just and enjoyable futures. She's written academic books on disability arts and culture, medicine and performance, and community performance. One of her particular joys of late is the Ecosomatic Symposium she initiated a few years back. You'll learn more about that in this episode. This morning, I'm getting to speak with Petra Kupas, who works in the areas of dance and creative writing and many other areas. Petra, it's so good to see you this morning. Thanks for joining me from Michigan, Michigan and Montana. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. <laughs> it's great. I One of the ways that I like to start this um, is to literally ask from where you are right now, how how does it look from where you are right this minute in that room? Yes, thank you. I am right now on Nishinaabe territory. So I live in the um, the the lands of the um, the Three Fires Confederacy, and the the place I am at right now is colonially known as Ypsilanti, Michigan. So it's a, a, a town called Ypsilanti, and I'm looking out. I'm in my I'm in the house that I share with my wife Stephanie Height. And I'm looking out of the window and I can see trees that hope for spring. You know, it's like the moment in time where we are all hoping for spring. But just like spring tends to do, there is a, a 
gray, grayish background with some silver openings in it. So silver is breaking through. There is some sun behind, but it's a promise. So on this particular April day, we are in a in a promise situation uh, where we're all ready to burst back into life. <laughs> isn't this so? Yes, up here, we're probably as high as you are in, in latitude. And so also yesterday I was able to see where the crows are nesting because there's no leaves on the trees yet. So there is that benefit here early, early in springtime. Well, um, I'm curious, let's just start this way. I'm curious to know what you would say about how the natural world has informed you. How does the natural world inform you and what got you to disability advocacy? Yes, so what informs my engagement with the natural world is my disability. So that's how I'm going to answer that question by colliding the two, um, hopefully really beautifully together. Because I have been disabled from birth. I, um, I've lived with pain, with chronic pain, ever since I was born. And I grew up in a um, working class environment in very rural Germany. That is my background, that's where I come from. Medical doctors were of course around. I mean, I was I was in Germany, I was, had access to, to medical care, but the village where I was, there wasn't really anybody who was looking at, you know, like bone diseases and the kinds of stuff that I eventually got diagnosed with. So it was, it was very hard to be someone who lived with pain and when you couldn't really see anything from the outside, you know, there wasn't any way of, of diagnosing what was wrong with me. So I remember my early years very much as a struggle by being forced to be, to go on long walks, on hikes with my parents and with my family and really wanting to enjoy it, but actually just experiencing a lot of pain. So that tension has always been there. And and my parents were, were, I mean, they were good people. I mean, they weren't trying to torture me in any way, but it's just very hard to communicate pain, to un- to get people to understand what is actually going on. So I was, I was, it was challenging to, to live that life because I very much enjoyed being a tomboy. I enjoyed being outdoors. My, my childhood experiences were all about being outside. I was like, the, the little village where I lived was literally next to us was a garden center i.e where we raised plants where i worked since i was 14 (laughs) so i was very much used to having my hands in soil and working with plants and then right next to that was just uh, was a bunch of farms and then the forest you know so i very very quickly i was in the middle of the forest loved being in the forest when i was a young one i already liked being just going there and hanging out you know, just like the, the hanging out of the mall that was like what was common for for urban kids at the time was my hanging out in, in the forest. And um, my earlier memories as a child was to the, the kind of neighborhood kids we would get together. So my my dad was working long hours in a brewery. My mom was working in a shoe store and my grandmother and granddad who worked in the same lived in the same house with us were the ones who were mainly sort of looking after us in terms of meals and stuff and um so i we always tell the story that at the end of the day the kids come home you have to kind of wash them down with a hose to figure out which kid belongs to which house because we it's all ditches and and mud where i come from it's flat countryside lots of cows lots of drainage ditches near the dutch border so it was it was it was muddy it was rich it was moist um you could see for miles across the land and we would all bicycle everywhere and 
all these things I very much enjoyed doing, but there was always this edge of pain in all the physical work that I was doing. So I was happiest in the water and I spent a lot of time swimming in the lakes and both artificial and real lakes around where I live. So that was my, always was my, my happy place. You know, the being in water was the best place, the, the most wonderful place I could be. So that was my, um, my delightful place. So all of that informs my art activism, my disability culture activism, because so much of it is about being with other disabled people in nature, finding ways that are right for us. You know, where we really pay attention to pain, to anxiety, to all these issues that affect so many of us. And we try to find ways to access the gorgeousness of being outside, the, the spaciousness of hanging out with a tree, the, the, the delight of lying on the grass, looking up at the open sky. You know, we try to access this in ways that are appropriate to us as disabled people across multiple disabilities, across multiple economic scales. You know, we're just trying. That's, that's always been the, uh, the driving force of my work. And so what would you um, identify as you run this out? And I'm sure there are myriad responses to this. Um, as as the implications of this work that you have for climate activism and support of health and the climate. Speak to that for a bit. Thank you. You're asking me lovely questions. Thank you. Um, so, yes, as, again, like for a long time, I think many people have been aware that our climate is shifting, that things are, are changing in really complicated ways. And I think many disabled people have been very aware of, of this because so many of us live, those of us who are economically disadvantaged, which often is a, is a clear effect of discrimination, have lived in some of the toxic zones, have lived on the edges of, of in, when I lived, worked with people in Wales, for instance, or in, um, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, lived in areas that can easily flood, you know, like the, the economic effects of flooding was, was really real for many people I was working with. Oh, I was working because I'm a rural artist with many people who lived very close to the land. So the changes that have come about and that are coming about uh, because of climate catastrophe and, and um, species death are very clearly felt, I think, by many disabled people because of the connection to economic disadvantage and hence the, the the effects on where we live and how clearly it becomes available if you don't have the cushion of money, if you don't have the cushion of living in some environments. I mean, I don't know, there's many environments that are not touched by climate change these days, but where you can have money to kind of not see, not experience what's going on around you. You experience that very much if the crop's not coming in or if um, if the river floods again and again and again. Yes, yes. And so what are the points of agency that you and your companions, your community find as you explore your relationship and see these things that are clearly systematized? Um, what sorts of agency do you find? Yeah. So the agency we find is a complicated one, right? So we all know that this notion of an individual agency in the fact of this climate change and planetary shifts and 
and really big money and multinational conglomerates. The personal agency is really quite small, but we do have agency about how we respond in ourselves, how we live our lives. So the agency is at the level of figuring out how we can be in in ethical balance with the the, the human and non-human world that we're part of, you know, to be in, in, uh, in good relation, to um, be open to change, not just the negative aspects of change, but the, the positive shifts of living in a world where so many more social justice issues have come to people's attention and people are paying attention. Um, And also just on the level of, of creating sources of well-being for ourselves and hence to others you know if you feel that you can you have access to a moment of meditation to a moment of of peace to a moment of connection your being in the world will affect others even if you don't go out there and try to like actively recruit them or proselytize them or do this and that to them you know just the fact that you're showing up as someone who can be um, at peace for a minute has an effect in the world that's that's very much the kind of activism I am I'm reaching for and I'm interested in, you know, how we can be be not at peace in the sense of not doing stuff, but how can we be at peace in the sense of um, striving for balance, striving for justice, uh, but being in a place of being well within ourselves as well as we can be given the what surrounds us and what is inside of us. So that, those are the moments that I find moments of of artful activism. This is Mary Claire and How It Looks From Here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. My husband and I, last Earth Day, had our book, Full Ecology, released. And within that book is the suggestion that the natural world teaches us, really, if we're listening, how to be right-sized. And when it comes down to it, the natural world, whatever, is not separate from us. But the planet doesn't really need human beings. You know, we need the planet. (laughs) And so as long as we're here in this quite privileged opportunity to have lives on this beautiful globe, what is our right size? What does that look like? And it's not as if human beings don't have any um, ancestry and tradition and therefore essential sense of what that looks like. Um, I'm curious, again, to hear about those kind of discussions. My sense is that people who live with disabilities because of the the circumstances and the unfolding of those of lives with disabilities in this culture that doesn't quite know how to respond um, that there's plenty that we who are able-bodied would have to learn from you know hearing those not co-opting but hearing those discussions what sorts of things can able-bodied people learn for how to be right-sized in the natural world from people that you know? Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's a beautiful question. 
And um, in one strand of activism in disability worlds right now, disability justice work, uh, the focus is to ask again and again to listen to the voices of those most affected. So in, in the case of, in, in, or in many cases, listening to the voices of um, particularly black people and people of color and indigenous people, um, trans people, disabled people, centering those voices can give us much more wisdom than, than me speaking as a, as a, a white woman who's disabled. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm pointing and I want to point to some of the incredible activism that is out there. I know that I take a lot of my, my, um, my guidance from people like uh, Alexis Pauline Gums and her work, which is getting more and more recognition is powerful, poetic work that speaks to us about what it live, what it means to live in, in on the other side of apocalypse, on the other side of being with creatures, non-human creatures, of engaging uh, the ethics of what it means to be in a world where so much death and so much violence has happened, continues to happen. How do we move forward? So this is one of the people that I am look, looking forward to right now. And many disabled voices are collected in a book called Disability Visibility. That's a collection, uh, uh, an anthology of um, life writing by a wide variety of disabled people. And it's a wonderful, wonderful book for getting a sense of how of of how we manage to live, of how we not just manage to survive, but how people manage to thrive, how to be in community. So those are some of the kinds of sources that I would point to. And in my own life and in my own activism, it's often it's it can be about books and about reading, but it can also just be about being in parks together, you know, going on field trips with fellow disabled people and just living well in in a park, you know, hanging out near the car park. I can't walk very far from, from the car park. So I might be on the edge of the car park hanging out. We might be, some of us might be moving out further. We might have a uh, a score or an instruction or a uh, some kind of poetic exercise that we're engaged in. We might be drawing some beautiful cattails that that uh, that live by the river. Uh, we might be engaging with and playing with the movement of the snakes that we we see in the undergrowth of the trees. You know, there's all tree snakes all over. Um, so that's you know those are those are these moments of richness where I think whether people are disabled or not, this is always these complicated boundaries, right? But where people who look for connection can look to people whose bodies have been devalued and bodies have been devalued in many, many different ways and body minds have been devalued in many, many different ways. So look towards people who have survived um, and who are thriving in their surviving and thriving not in economic terms necessarily, but in in being rich in terms of connection and um, thoughtful, creative, connected practice in the world. Wonderful. Thank you. You know, and I also know from looking at your descriptions, we had a brief conversation about this when we spoke earlier, that you use this term, I saw it used, um, there's a, a group you work with, Echo Symposia? Oh, the, the, Is that... <laughs> the Eco Symposium, Ecosomatic Symposium. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's something I've been leading for a good few years now. That's a super fun thing. It was, uh, oh my God, I just had so much joy. Um, I'm living with so much joy with this particular activity. This is a uh, 
an ongoing research project. So it's it was funded by by grants from the University of Michigan. Uh, it allowed me for years to bring people together and have mini symposia. So we had a number of these small symposiums where often just 10 to 20 people, you know, would get together and run workshops for one another. And so that um, and in the in the middle, of course, was the was the pandemic, uh, the still ongoing pandemic. And a lot of these symposia went online. So we had a lot of these engagements online where we were many more people because it was so much easier to to have, you know, 50, 60 people on a call. So and then right now we're moving back to to a, an experimental small symposium. So we had the first um, on the first of the recent um, in-person symposia in September 2021 and in that symposium this was there was a moment right before Omicron hit right when we were all sort of hoping that maybe we would be we would be okay we weren't yet but we were hoping for it but we met in all in garden spaces so all you know the people opened up their backyards so um we worked here in the backyard of Turtle Disco the the home I share with Stephanie um, we worked in the backyard of a colleague's farm. Uh, we worked in the uh, the vegetable patch of another colleague who, who lives here in Ypsilanti. And we worked by the Huron River. There's a little at Riverside Park in Ypsilanti. We have a little pavilion outdoors and we were working in that one too. So we just basically, the whole symposium was just outdoors and consisted of people running performance scores with one another and then breaking bread together outdoors again uh, you know, we were able to be in the kind of central uh, plaza of Ypsilanti and, and ate beautiful Mexican food together. And just, you know, it just was it was a celebration of life. It was absolutely gorgeous. And the majority of people were presenting were disabled and people identified as indigenous, as black, as, you know, as, as many of us identified as queer. So it was a really interesting mix of people who come together in these events and I'll have one coming up in May. So May 6th and 7th, we we kind of, we're, we're getting rid of the final money that we have. <laughs> and yes, we have we have a beautiful visual art exhibit that anchors it. So every one of these symposia has a different anchor. The September one was called Eco Monsters and we played with notions of monstrosity and um, Gothic um, others. That was very fun. And the one that's coming up now is called Present Breath. And it's a lot about drawing practice. So the two visual artists, Janika Svetvilas and Jennifer Lickers, both work with drawing practice, charcoal in the main and also other drawing materials in the gallery space. So they will transform this gallery as part of the symposium. Present breath in Ypsilanti. Well, speak, turn, turn, give us the, um, the, what, do you mean when you say ecosomatics? Mm -hmm. Yes, so ecosomatics has become quite a recognizable term where people people think about the relationship between what it means to be in a sensing, living, breathing body, but also embedded in in an environment. So where we're not just thinking about our own skin sack and what's going on inside it, but we are in a, in a relationship to the outside and to the natural world that surrounds us and the unnatural world that surrounds us. And I am particularly interested. So that's an ongoing strand of work, right? So there's all this really interesting and rich work that's going on under that label. My own work is then an 
adds a kind of poetic dimension to that, an art-based dimension, and I call it ecosoma methods. So I have these two different worlds, eco and soma, and I think of them as two words that are sort of circling around one another, because I'm really interested in the contradictions and the chafing, and, you know, even what we talked about earlier, the chafing between living well, feeling some sort of peace in yourself, and a world that 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 attacks us and also is, is under attack both right we're living in wartime so these these kind of chafings against one another i'm very interested in in what happens in the chafing and in the in the kind of pearl structures that emerge in the rubbing so think of it like an oyster right and an irritant and then this pearl emerging out of the chafing out of the irritation that's the kind of art practices that I'm particularly intrigued by, where there's a, a shimmer that takes irritation as part of its as part of its method, as part of its its message as well. So it's never just about resting peacefully, but also about that the glimmer, the shimmer, the 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 tensions in the work. Well, and there's I I ran across a poem of yours called "Found on the Pond Deck," and we're going to put the link to that and other ways to get to your work in our show notes. But this particular poem ends with uh, these five lines: "I remember my watery nature, pour my liquid body to wash away the pain of the shorter years, to wash away the pain of a hollow embrace." the feeling that we will all slide not into the clear pool, but into the murk of a place that should not be settled. Can you speak to those based on what you were just saying? Thank you. Yeah, thanks for reading, uh, thanks for reading my poem. How it's beautiful to, to, to hear that, you know, to hear someone else read. Take, take your words into their mouth. You know, there's something very intimate and exciting about that. I love that. So yeah, uh, so that is for me something about these ecosoma methods of not settling. You know, we are, I am, I am a white settler on this land. And what does it mean to be aware of not settling, of, of being somewhat at odds, you know, of, not, of being aware of one's status as a settler, being aware of as a disabled woman of being unstable, stumbling. You know, I'm using these these metaphors of stumbling and settlement as ways of pointing to the generative nature of what it means to be off-center, dislocated, to be to move myself out of the center of out of the center, out of the privileged place. As much as I can, I am a privileged woman in many ways. I'm deal with other kinds of, of non-privilege in certain other ways and I'm embracing that I'm specifically interested in that off-axis moment of unsettlement and stumbling and I write in this poem and in many of my poems about pain and washing away I'm using this the line here to wash away the pain of a hollow embrace you know the I am engaging with um, the 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 seductive ease of just of being in an embrace of finding center of being truly at peace you know i do find that that is a that is an illusion you know it's an illusionary space given given the complexities of the world we live in given how hard it is to 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 not always be off center by pain 
whether it's my, one's own body pain or whether it's uh, dif the different kind of spiritual pains that surround us. So, so I'm intrigued by those moments of, of unsettling, of what water does to moments of pain, to what it means to slide into a murk, to be in places of murkiness. And out of that, create those those pearly layers that I spoke about. Yes. And then both are there. Yes. And this is an intriguing uh, notion to me. And it is one that I, I wonder about. I was going to ask you about the question speculative. So we'll get to that in just a minute. So this notion is that there is an awareness for human beings. There is a, a sensibility uh, and it may defy language entirely, that is present before anything that has a valence of positive or negative, across which I then attribute with positive or negative plays, but that there is that that holds it all, no matter how ugly, and things are really ugly and terrifying in many ways on our planet right now among the humans. So I then wondered about your use of the word speculative writing or speculative movement. Could you speak to that and how it ties back into uh, containing the, the murk and the pearly? Yeah, thank you. So speculative. Uh, speculative has many, many meanings. And the one that I embrace in my Ecosoma book is is really is kind of a very um, old school one, speculative as horror, science fiction, and fantasy. You know the genres, the genres of thinking in non-realist ways. You know, in in literature and in many other forms, um, the, particularly in the U.S., we have a strong a strong investment in realism, you know, like really telling, like really getting close to what it's like to be oneself, what it's like to be another, you know, these, these are often the questions that drive um, discussions of, of, of fiction work, for instance. And I am very interested in that, that again, a murky underside, right, the, the often uh, denigrated space of genre writing. So I myself write horror, I see a lot of my my uh, my creative writing, both in fiction and in poetry, as as located in the area of dark fantasy, I often see the intensities of horror as a place where one can really speak about pain and joy and lust and and like intensity. You know, just the explosion of sensation that um, that these genres make possible. So the speculative um, has the sense of falling out of consensus world falling out of that which um, which everybody knows, you know, which everybody sees and perceives. So I'm intrigued by monsters. Uh, and I'm also intrigued by by the the kind of positive visions, you know, to use the word positive as in like um, uh, uh, um, calming visions that come from me moving in a city place with other dancers and experiencing my movements as being guided by golden lines. You know, to have these golden lines of energy that run from one uh, one limb of one dancer to another one, onto another one, out towards a cloud, out towards the pavement. You know, the, the kind of senses that can can come over you as you're intensely engaged in an art activity. And 
and I know you you have you work in dance as well, so you know what I'm talking about. Oh, and, yes. and often in dance studies, we we in the past we often have not used these languages, right? We kind of shied away because we're not talking about energy lines. But then some of the people who began writing about dance, people like Rudolf von Laban, for instance, he writes about energy lines. So and I'm I'm calling back to that kind of vocabulary. I'm calling back to the knowledges that we that we as dancers have, that movers have, that people who really intensely give themselves to an activity have when the world shifts, when you're suddenly in a different place. You're no longer just dancing on a city street. You suddenly have energy, the energy of the world running through you because you're so intensely in it and it's a delicious feeling. And it is only there momentarily and then you observe it and you fall out of it. You know, it's like, it's the flow that... Uh, that some theorists talk about that uh -huh. moment of flow and i think many of the fantastical sensations metaphors and images that infuse so much of creative practice come from these moments of flow of experiencing yourself in a non-consensus reality where something exciting happens some intensities happen around you so speculative and this as you're describing it is consistent with non-consensus Non-consensus, um, non-realist. A yeah. non-realist. Okay, mm -hmm. but uh, this is where I find, is it really non-realist? Is it really? <laughs> or are we gaining access to things That's that right. normal That's... human conditioned understanding doesn't necessarily uh, have permission to perceive? And that what you are offering through this non-consensus and unrealistic, you know, sort of... Um, what you are offering is the opportunity for the human experience to open more to its actual nature. Is this so? Yes, I think that, and again, we're coming back to what we talked about at the beginning, that so many disabled people have access to these kinds of ways of perception, because if you live with pain or if you leave with, uh, live with different mental states, if um, then you have access to other ways of perceiving the world. And the speculative work that I'm interested in are often the kind of spaces that make visible or experiential those other ways of living. So yes, it's, it is realist. It's it's realistic. <laughs> it is life life reality, and it's non-realist because it doesn't uh, dovetail with the kind of um, the, the kind of uh, dicta of realisms. With yeah. the standard, the standards of of. Uh, including the literary standards of what it is that you are that you're writing about. Yeah. yeah. So. Oh, this is mm -hmm. great work, Petra. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Um, I wonder as we begin coming to a close here, which feels too quick. <laughs> I think we could go on for a good while. Um, nonetheless, what would be? And some people aren't really fans of advice, but. Uh, imagine that you are in this position of being able to say to a group of people whose faces you'll likely never see, most of them, um, what wisdom would you like to share? What advice might you give to these listeners who are interested in how it looks from where you live, especially here in times of climate change? Thank you. So yes, advice is a complicated thing. <laughs> indeed, yes, absolutely. But I would be I would tell people to just to look at disability culture work, look at writing and dance practices and visual art and 
videos by disabled people. So that seems to me such a rich way of of opening up to a form of cultural expression that hasn't that doesn't doesn't have a strong space in the mainstream. You know, so there's so much to be found. So uh, find and look at what's out there, and it allows you to understand that there is richness in all kinds of ways of being of being a human on this planet you know and including being a human in contact with non-human others on this planet so i think that's very very useful because so many people are so deadly afraid of disability it feels to many people as being the worst thing that could happen to them look to disabled people's cultural practices to soothe your sense that disability is so bad it is it's a complicated experience but it can also be a really rich one because it does allow you access to very different ways of living so so that's my primary advice and my secondary advice is to cultivate ways of se- of of sensing into your own body of sensing into the way that the world is holding your body to hold you know to to feel the the support that the air the soil the furniture i'm sitting on right now that it's offering to me and to just fall back into that sense of being held that that you can access in so many different ways so if you can try to cultivate that in that base feeling of being held on this planet uh, it allows you access to to a form of peace from which you then can become active become agencyful become interested in the world again yes thank you Thank you. Thank you for this oh. lovely interview. I really enjoyed this. Oh, yes. And best, very best wishes in your continued work. And uh, I'm so delighted to have had the opportunity to meet you. And, of course, uh, we'll hold the possibility of connection again. about Petra Kuppers' art, writing, and activism by visiting her website at www.petrakuppers.com. Check out Petra's poetry books, like Gut Botany, her speculative fiction, like Ice Bar, and her scholarship, most recently in her book Ecosoma, with the University of Minnesota Press in the Art After Nature series. You can find more on disability culture in the anthology Disability Visibility, edited by Alice Wong. See links to these and other resources in our show notes. How It Looks From Here is an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and the Systems Zoo. How It Looks From Here was created and produced by me, Mary Claire, and Joe LaVisca. Editing by Joe LaVisca, music by Cedar mathers Wen and Gary Ferguson. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at www.fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch.